we don't necessarily notice in our English translations is that the book of Daniel was written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. In fact, Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, up to chapter 7, verse 28, is written in Aramaic. So, think of Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a vision or a dream that troubles him, all the way to chapter 7, where Daniel has a dream or a vision. That whole section is written in Aramaic. Aramaic being the common tongue for most of the known world during Daniel's day, which implies to us that this section was meant for the broadest possible audience. It's not just for Jews, it's for everybody. I mean, all of Scripture is for everybody, but this section was written so that everybody could understand. And Daniel chapter 4 is noteworthy because our narrator, the person who's been telling the stories so far, steps aside, and he gives Nebuchadnezzar the floor. So re let's read verse 1 up to verse 3. Nebuchad um, Daniel chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 3. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And no, you are not hearing things. This is indeed Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Nebuchadnezzar, who thus far has been introduced to us as a megalomaniac, who ordered the wise men hacked to pieces because they could not interpret his dream. The same megalomaniac who set up a golden image in order to thumb his nose at Yahweh and who tried to barbecue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That same Nebuchadnezzar is in this passage praising Yahweh. So the question that arises in our minds is, how on earth did that happen? Well, once again, it began with a dream. A dream that gave Nebuchadnezzar the heebie-jeebies. In fact, we are told in verse 4 and verse 5 that that same dream destabilized his complacent prosperity and turned him upside down and inside out. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay to bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And, of course, once again, he desperately wanted to know what the dream meant. And once again, he called the astrologers, the, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans to tell him the dream, or to tell him the interpretation of the dream, but once again, they could not interpret the dream. This time, though, there's a change. Instead of ordering them killed, he remembered, oh yeah, that's right, I've got Daniel. I should ask him to interpret the dream. 
because he believed that Daniel had the spirit of the holy gods in him. And, you know, that's how a pagan like him would understand Daniel's ability to interpret dreams. And this, despite Daniel insisting in chapter 2, you know, I don't have the ability to interpret your dreams. It is God who reveals the meaning to me. And so, Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel in, and he describes the dream to Daniel, beginning in verse 10. Let's read that. Daniel chapter 4, verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. So imagine a humongous tree, a tree that reaches up to heaven, verdant, abundant fruit. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And as soon as Nebuchadnezzar described the dream to Daniel, Daniel was distraught. He understood what it meant. And, and, and it was, its meaning was so terrible, Nebuchadnezzar had to comfort him. Can you imagine? Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by the dream. He goes to Daniel for comfort, and he ends up comforting Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had to tell him, let, let not the dream or interpretation alarm you. Daniel, calm down. It's okay. And as far as Daniel was concerned, it was not okay. See, he understood that the dream was a warning to Nebuchadnezzar. He recognized that Nebuchadnezzar was that great tree. And if the tree was going to be chopped down, that meant that God's judgment was hanging over Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. 
Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, you might say, well, why would Daniel be dismayed? What's the problem? Nebuchadnezzar is going to be judged. Good for him. Well, what is this? Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. What for? Wouldn't it be good for Nebuchadnezzar to be chopped down? I mean, this is the same guy who had destroyed Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan who oppressed his own people and had no regard for God. Lengthen your prosperity? What's wrong with you, Daniel? Shouldn't Daniel be gloating over the dream? Shouldn't he say, <laughs> good for you? Why would Daniel care for such a horrible person? Well, because that's what the people of God are supposed to do, isn't it? We who have experienced God's mercy and compassion need to reflect that same mercy and compassion. Wayne Baxter points out how easy it would have been for Daniel to give to the king the dream's interpretation with an air of smugness knowing that Nebuchadnezzar's demise could spell, among other things, a return to the promised land. But not so with Daniel. He was genuinely concerned for his king's welfare. And like Daniel, we must genuinely care for the unbelievers God places in our life. It becomes all too easy for an exiled community, a community that has been thrust from society's center to its fringes, becoming an object of scorn and contempt, to circle the wagons and stop caring about the world, be concerned only about itself, and adopt a club mentality. Perhaps one of the most caring things exilic believers can do for their captors, be they politicians, union leaders, or members of the media, is to heed the words of Jesus. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, brothers and sisters, I have to say, part of me wants to say, serves Nebuchadnezzar right. But Daniel's response rebukes me and reminds you and me that we need to have a posture of loving concern for unbelievers around us, regardless of the way they think of us, regardless of the way they treat us. See, it's all too easy for us to look down on our society and its distorted desires instead of mourning over its brokenness and need for Christ. And I do think we need to repent of our own arrogance and self-righteousness. See, what is even more surprising than Daniel's attitude towards Nebuchadnezzar is the very fact that God himself bothered to warn Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's call to repentance was actually part of God's message to Nebuchadnezzar. It was the divinely inspired interpretation of the dream. You see, 
The goal of prophetic literature isn't speculation about the future. In many ways, the goal of prophetic literature is to call the people of God to repentance in the present. And that same call to repent given to Nebuchadnezzar is God acting in sovereign, incomparable grace. And you will note that God shows Nebuchadnezzar even more grace by exercising tremendous patience. See, nothing happens to Nebuchadnezzar for a year. But we are told in verse 30 that one day, as Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his palace, perhaps surveying the walls that he had built, walls that were wide enough to accommodate an eight-horse chariot and allow it to make a U-turn. Walls that were so high, nobody could scale them. Perhaps looking down on the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. Nebuchadnezzar said, verse 30, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, we're, we're good with that tone, right? That's our tone. And as soon as he said that, we are told, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And from that moment, we are told, Nebuchadnezzar lived like an animal, like an ox eating grass, sleeping out in the field. In fact, it was so weird that his hair grew out almost like feathers. And you know, God was merely showing what Nebuchadnezzar was really like deep inside. His bestial insanity revealed the implications of his anti-God pride. That was true for Nebuchadnezzar, it's true for us. You see, when we live for ourselves without regard to God, we actually degrade ourselves. When we harbor arrogance in our hearts, we are acting in subhuman fashion. And for all our pretensions to intelligence and sophistication, the truth is we are debasing and dehumanizing ourselves. That's the horror of living in rebellion against God who made us to live in loving submission to him for his glory. See, the most fully human life was the life that, li that Jesus lived. The life that Paul described as being in very nature God. He considered his being equal to God as something that he would not take advantage of. But instead, he humbled himself and walked in obedience to his father as a fully human being. Anything short of that is subhuman. 
That's the horror of our lives, isn't it? When we live for ourselves, when we think too much of ourselves, when we put ourselves, we think ourselves as more important than others. We're acting like the animal that Nebuchadnezzar acted like. But you know, there's something even more astounding than what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. We are told that after seven years, God restored Nebuchadnezzar. And I think it's very good that we allow Nebuchadnezzar to describe what happens to him. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. You notice how when he was on the roof of his palace, he was looking down on his realm. And he started to act like an animal. Now, on the ground, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and his reason returns to him. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God would bring Nebuchadnezzar to his senses, enable him to repent of his arrogance, and lead him to submissive faith in Yahweh? Hear those words again. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amazing. And brothers and sisters, this is what gives us hope as we minister here in Guelph. You look around you, it seems as if the ground is super hard. People are not interested in the gospel. But the account of how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar demonstrates that nothing is too difficult for God. If God could change the heart of a Nebuchadnezzar, then he could change anyone's heart. I mean, for crying out loud, he changed your heart and mine. Better yet, do you realize how relentlessly God pursued Nebuchadnezzar? It begins in chapter 1. God sent Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into Nebuchadnezzar's court. But he ignored the testimony of their God-given excellence at work. Chapter 2, God warned Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're so great? Your reign is a gift, and it's got an expiry date. Nebuchadnezzar resisted. 
Instead of bowing to Yahweh, he made a gold statue for the empire to worship, to say to God, I can build my kingdom myself. Thank you very much. And so God demonstrates his power to save by rescuing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember his question. Who is the God who can save you from my hands? <laughs> Yahweh. No worries. But he's still not humbled. And so now God takes drastic measures to humble this arrogant man. Makes him act like an animal. Basically gives him over to his desires. And humbles him. And in humbling Nebuchadnezzar, brought him into personal relationship. Do you see how God spared no effort to bring Nebuchadnezzar to himself? And you know, this gives hope to anyone who's here, who thinks he's too far gone, that he's hopeless, or that she's too broken for God to even want. This text tells us that there is no one who is beyond the grace of God. We sang, God is mighty to save. This text demonstrates God is mighty to save. And he isn't asking you to do anything amazing or magnificent or, or beyond your ability. He simply tells us to cast ourselves on Christ in humble repentance and submissive faith. Or as the hymn writer would put it, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. The Nebuchadnezzar of all people experienced the grace of God. And the way that God showed him mercy helps us to embrace the reality of God's sovereignty. See, this passage still fits under the overarching theme that circumstances notwithstanding, God is still in control. Three times we hear these words, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's the sovereignty of God in a nutshell. But that statement can leave us a little cold, can't it? It, make, it can make us feel as if we're just pawns on God's cosmic chessboard. But I hope you realize that God's patient pursuit of Nebuchadnezzar shows us that the, so shows us that the sovereignty of God is a loving omnipotence that is determined to seek our good and his glory. And so we need not be afraid of God's sovereignty. We can embrace and rejoice in the sovereignty of God. We can rejoice in the fact that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, even now, and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. In fact, we have every reason to rejoice. You see, the ultimate expression of God's sovereignty is the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to know how far God will go to save a sinner? Look no further than the cross. Because there, the second person of the triune God 
who humbled himself to become a fully human being while still being God, exercised his sovereign power so that he would be crucified on our behalf. He exercised his sovereign power so that he might suffer the most shameful death. So that he may pay for our sins. And he sovereignly rose again to bring in the new creation. And so brothers and sisters, the sovereignty of God is our hope in time of distress. It is that same sovereignty that is our confidence during these times when we are in exile, when we are on the margins of society. And that same sovereignty is the basis of our loving compassion towards our fellow image bearers in revolt against him. We proclaim the gospel with the care and compassion of Daniel because we know that our Savior, our Lord, has already triumphed. We have nothing to prove. We have no victories to win. It's already won. God the Father is in control and has exalted Christ to the highest place. He reigns and rules over all for the sake of his church. Better yet, as we read earlier, God has given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The sovereign God guarantees that this will happen when Christ returns. It's not in our hands to make this happen. It's already accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We simply await its consummation. But as his people who have already bowed the knee to Christ, who have experienced that same love and mercy that brought us to faith, it is our privilege to hold out that same surprising mercy, to demonstrate that same grace that we have received. And my prayer, brothers and sisters, is that we who know the sovereign God, who, who experience the reality of his sovereignty day by day by day, the people would see the sovereignty of God at work in our lives as we engage with compassion, as we engage with love, as we genuinely are distraught over the fate of our friends, as our hearts are broken by the need of people around us as we see the rebellion against Christ, as we mourn and lament over their lostness, so that people will see the love of Christ shining in and through us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you we thank you that you, our sovereign Lord, exercise your sovereignty in mercy, in grace. For even as your righteous judgment hangs over us, you sent your Son 
the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe to become a fully human being so that he may lay down his life for us. Oh Lord, we are astounded at this marvelous unity of power, greatness, holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, and compassion. We thank you that at the cross, your wrath and your mercy have met and kissed. And we are the beneficiaries of that same wisdom. Lord, what an astounding thing it is that you would humble the proud, that you humbled Nebuchadnezzar and brought him to yourself. Father, what an astounding thing it is to realize that you have humbled us and brought us to yourself. For we, each in our own ways, are petty tyrants just like Nebuchadnezzar seeking to be as God each in our own way. And yet you have brought us to yourself through the sacrifice of Christ, through the work of your Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to see how great the mercy you have lavished upon us, to see, to grasp the infinite depths of your grace towards us, to understand the unfathomable love with which you continue to love us despite ourselves. So that your love might grip us. First of all, to love you back in humble adoration and submission. And out of that amazement at your grace, at your love, learn what it means to love those around us, our brothers and sisters who share in that same love, to love those who are outside your grace with that same love that you lavished on us when we were outside of your grace. So the people might see your love through us and that they too may know the wonder of your grace, your saving love. Oh, Father, what a precious gift you have given us. Help us to be faithful stewards of that same gift. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake.